You know, it can be hard to see the challenges that people we work with every day are going through. Invisible struggles like stress and burnout, caregiving for a loved one, or being misunderstood. But insight, awareness, and empathy will help us better see the issues they're dealing with. And that can make us and our companies healthier, too. I'm Holly Robinson-Pete. Join us on The Visibility Gap, a new podcast presented by Cigna Healthcare. Download it wherever you get your podcasts. The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at QatarEconomicForum.com. Live from our nation's capital, this is Bloomberg Sound On. Talking about a huge issue here is investment in marginalized communities. Want to deconstruct this package and cherry pick what they like and what they don't like. China is surging forward with major investments. Bloomberg Sound On. The insiders, the influencers, the insights. Biden has promised again and again that he will unite the country. Who do you think Biden has to watch in terms of moderate defectors? Infrastructure has always been bipartisan. Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. The Senate was back in session today and many of the president's top priorities are coming up for consideration in the coming days in Congress, including infrastructure. But the president and the GOP remain really far apart on that, which may be what is prompting both the president and the vice president to leave infrastructure summer in D.C. and go overseas. We're going to talk about that and much more coming up on Sound On. We'll also check in with former Congressman Mike Rogers. But first, let's get a quick check on the markets with Charlie Pellet. Quick indeed. Lots going on. Janie, happy Monday to you. Stitch Fix shares surging post-market trading after the company that recommends and sells clothes online projected fiscal fourth quarter revenue that topped analysts' expectations. Shares right now, they're up by 15% after our Stitch Fix base in San Francisco. Big day for Biogen. A share surged after its controversial Alzheimer's disease therapy was approved by regulators, a landmark decision that stands to dramatically change treatment for the debilitating brain condition. Biogen shares did rally today up by 38.3%. Tesla shares shrugged off disappointment from a decision to drop a longer-range version of its high-performance Model S sedan. At one point, Tesla was down 2.7%, but it did rally late in the day. Final hour of trading, we actually saw a gain today for Tesla, up by 1%. Most equities declined. Treasury yields rose as investors weighed inflation risks and the potential impact of a minimum corporate tax. S&P down 3, a drop there of one-tenth of 1%. The Dow down 126 lower by four-tenths. NASDAQ up 67, a gain of five-tenths of 1%. Ten-year yield 1.56%. Gold at 18.99 the ounce. And West Texas Intermediate crude down six-tenths of 1%, 69.23 a barrel. Again, recapping, S&P down three, down one-tenth of 1%. I'm Charlie Pellet. That genie is a Bloomberg Business Flash. 
Thank you, Charlie, and happy Monday to you. I'm Jeannie Shanzano here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and former New York congressman and Democratic Caucus chair Joe Crowley. So I bet, Rick and Joe, you were both waiting to see what the Charleston Gazette Mail had to publish in their op-ed this weekend. And it was probably, I'm guessing, maybe one of the most read, I I don't know, in their history. It was an op-ed from Democratic Senator Joe Manchin of West Virginia, who announced, I'm much to the dismay, I'm sure, of many progressives, Democrats, and the White House, that he will vote against the one of his party's signature voting bills for the People Act, known as H.R. 1. In his op-ed, he also said he would not take any steps to weaken or remove the filibuster. And I'm quoting here, he said, the right to vote is fundamental to our American democracy, and protecting that right should not be about party or politics. Least of all, protecting this right, which is a value I share, should never be done in a partisan manner. He went on to say, I believe that partisan voting legislation will destroy the already already weakening binds of our democracy, and for that reason, I will vote against the For the People Act. Furthermore, I will not vote to weaken or eliminate the filibuster. And I'm suspecting, Rick, I don't know if you agree with me, this may explain in part Harris and Biden fleeing the United States this week for the South and Europe. But what what was your view of Joe Manchin's op-ed and what impact it's going to have on both of these pieces of legislation as Congress comes back to session this week? Well, I'm not sure Joe Manchin ran the president out of town by this op-ed. <laughs> oh, uh, come on, Rick. <laughs> but, but, but I'm willing to say that it is going to really uh, have a significant impact on the legislative agenda, uh, probably more so on H.R. 1, the, the, the For the People Act. This is a massive federal uh, act that gets into electioneering. And for those who don't know uh, – the federal government tends to not get into electioneering. It's all you know run by the states. States usually have precedents. It's one of those things that was a result of states' rights many, many years ago, and, and, and they were allowed to run their own elections. So we have 50 different state election processes, and it's unusual that the federal government gets too involved in, in, in that. And this is a pretty big intrusion into those states' issues. And, and I think his unwillingness to use a – uh, filibuster uh, breaker to uh, try to pass this bill is going to consign it to the scrap heap of American legislation. Uh, how that then affects other pieces of legislation, I think is still to be determined. But this is one uh, where with they were never going to get any Republican votes on it. And so it was never considered a bipartisan piece of legislation. So if they can't do it with the 50 plus one, then they're not going to do it at all. And and to your point, the the federal government has not gotten into voting le- legislation um, to a good extent, but he did express support for renewal of the 1965 Voting Rights Act, essentially this John Lewis bill, which would give the federal government preclearance. He would like to extend that to apply to all 50 states. Um, and that seems to have a much better chance, in my estimation, of passage, although passage of anything at this point is difficult. But, but Joe Crowley, what do you make of both Joe Mansions op-ed and also the prospects for either one of these voting bills, which are so important to Democrats and particularly progressives, and to their prospects in 2022 and 2024, we should add. Well, you know, I, I don't think it's really a big surprise that uh, 
Manchin uh, said that he would not support the lifting of the filibuster. Um, that's been fairly consistent coming from him. Um, as much as that may disappoint uh, the progressives in the House or the Senate, uh, what I thought was interesting is that he went further to say that he would not support for the for the uh, the People Act. Um, uh, although, as mentioned, as you mentioned, he's for the Jean Lewis Act. Uh, it was almost uh, that that was really the news here. It wasn't that he was going to support the uh, maintenance of the filibuster, um, but it does uh, it does put a, a you know a, a you know a bit of a fly in the ointment here for the administration and frustrates, I think, progress on the Hill. Uh, we know that Senator Schumer is going to be putting forth a number of bills uh, in the Senate uh, with every expectation they will fail uh, to further highlight the need to uh, build public pressure on the Senate uh, to move on legislation, as well as, I think, on to Manchin and others uh, to move on uh, the filibuster. But, uh, you know, that's still a tall order in my, in my estimate. And Joe, can I get you to react as a fellow New Yorker um, to this, uh, I believe it was a tweet from Representative Jones, a, a Democrat from New York, a, a liberal in the House, who said, quote, Manchin's op-ed might as well be titled, Why I'll Vote to Preserve Jim Crow. Very, very tough words from Representative Jones. Well, I think there's been a lot of hyperbole and a lot of tough words by people uh, of late from all sides. So I'm not exactly shocked about that. Uh, I do think it's important to point out that Joe Manchin uh, is probably the only person on planet Earth right now who could get elected as a Democrat in West Virginia. The state is overwhelmingly Republican, overwhelmingly supported uh, President Trump. Uh, and so uh, I think it's important to know where he's coming from. Um, you know, I, too, would like to see both these uh, bills pass the Senate. Um, but uh, I also think it's important to recognize the politics here that uh, if it's not Joe Manchin, if it ain't Joe Manchin in that seat, I guarantee you it is not a little Democrat. That's that's absolutely right. And I think that does give, to your point, Joe Manchin, a good deal of cover, because electorally, he's got to be just begging Democrats to come in and criticize him at this point. Um, another issue that is impacted by by Manchin's editorial is obviously infrastructure talks. And today, Joe Biden was meeting again with the uh, the 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 person in charge of the GOP negotiations here, Shelley Moore Capito. But despite these ongoing talks between both sides. There's still no deal. Um, Senate Republicans late last week gave an offer to the White House that totaled only a really small percentage of the president's $2.3 trillion package. And today, White House spokesperson Jen Psaki said that is nowhere near good enough. We have sound on that. The offer did not meet the president's bar of growing the economy, tackling the climate crisis, and creating new jobs. And I would remind all of you, both in our counteroffer, but then in a lot of your reporting, it's clear the president has come down by about a trillion dollars. And Rick, the president has come down. And one thing I noticed uh, in his interview uh, on, with Fox Sunday this weekend, Joe Manchin did not rule out necessarily, at least in my view of it, going and doing infrastructure on reconciliation, essentially. So do you think there's a chance if we don't see a deal between Capito and Biden, do you think there's a chance that they do this on reconciliation and they keep uh, Joe Manchin's vote for that? 
Well, I would say that Senator Manchin has been very consistent on saying he wants GOP support for this legislation, right? So he has always said and did this weekend that he was looking for a bipartisan bill. Now, bipartisan bill could be 60 plus votes um, or it could be uh, some Republicans willing to cross the line and not maybe getting to that amount and doing it on reconciliation. But I think if he were going to agree to do it on reconciliation, he would have to see some Republican support on top of that. It wouldn't be just a 50 plus one vote. So uh, I think he's been clear on that. And I think that's kept the negotiators, both uh, uh, Senator Capito and and um, and um, President uh, Biden, uh, honest to their efforts to try and come to a deal. Honestly, at this point, I, I really can't imagine why they wouldn't get a deal. They've invested heavily in it. For any one of them to withdraw now is going to make it look like they're the ones who broke the trust. And uh, and so, um, you know, sometimes these things go a little longer than they have to. But I'm still uh, encouraged by the fact that they're talking. They're getting closer and closer, as uh, the president's uh, press secretary said. And uh, and I think that could result in a deal. And Joe Curley, to Rick's point, he's been much more optimistic about this than I have, as you can just hear. Um, in, in about 30 seconds, does Biden risk losing many Democrats in the House on a deal like this? Well, once again, as I have to do, I, I agree with Rick. I still think there's an opportunity for bipartisanship here. I was a little disappointed in terms of what happened last Friday and the reports today, but I still think there's hope for a bipartisan deal. But if not, I will suggest that uh, that uh, Joe Manchin would be under tremendous pressure, tremendous pressure uh, to pass a reconciliation package um, without necessarily uh, a great deal of support from Republicans. I think Rick is right. You can have a couple of straggler Republicans even voting for and infrastructure done uh, by uh, reconciliation. So look at Joe and Rick, I'm outnumbered. You're both much more optimistic than I am, and I hope you are right. And of course, you probably heard over the weekend that we welcomed, not me myself, but we welcomed a new royal baby. Prince Harry and Meghan Markle had a daughter named Lilibet Diana. And we see that the president, our president, is going to be heading over to Europe and he will be meeting with the Queen on Sunday. So it would be fascinating to see what they have to exchange about great-grandchildren and grandchildren over there. We're going to talk about his trip and much more. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. What could you do if your data was working for you and not against you? With Bloomberg delivering enterprise data directly to your systems, you get easy access to the details you want, optimized for higher level analysis, and financial data experts committed to helping you maximize your every move. Our data is made for more, so you can show the world what you're made of. Visit Bloomberg.com slash enterprise data to learn more. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. And I'm Jeannie Shanzano here with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis and former New York Congressman and Democratic Caucus Chair Joe Crowley. On Sunday, Vice President Kamala Harris left for a two-day trip to Mexico and Guatemala as part of her efforts to tackle what the administration describes as the root causes of the crisis at the southern border, a combination of poverty, economic instability, and extreme weather. 
She is focusing primarily on the triangle countries of El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras, and visiting one of those countries, Guatemala, and then Mexico on her two days abroad. And her office said she's going to take a multi-pronged approach, which will include addressing climate change, food insecurity, poverty, violence, and corruption during her bilateral meetings with the president of Guatemala and then the president of Mexico. And later this week on Wednesday, President Biden is leaving for his first trip overseas as president. He and the first lady are scheduled to meet or to leave on Wednesday, and he will be meeting on Thursday with Boris Johnson, followed by three days in Cornwall for the G7, and then a meeting with the Queen, as we mentioned on Sunday, before he leaves for Brussels to attend a NATO summit. And the main event next week is Wednesday, his one-on-one meeting with Vladimir Putin. And the U.S. National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan said today that the president is going to be strategizing with America's allies as to how best to protect themselves against a variety of threats and adversaries. We have sound on that. The G7 leaders will make a number of significant commitments on climate, on labor standards, on anti-corruption, and on ransomware. So, Rick, one of the things I noticed is that Biden had an editorial in The Washington Post not that long ago where he he described this as a rally for democracy in the face of China and Russia. It seems to me that the administration is downplaying deliverables on this trip, but stressing that they are going to try to reset post-Trump. What is your read on this trip and what do you expect the president will come away with? Well, I think that part of it is uh, that President Biden likes to be the big think, right? He likes to put out the big concepts like, you know, preserving democracy and fighting totalitarianism. And and that was very reminiscent of Ronald Reagan. Ronald Reagan would always talk in these big sort of uh, concepts, uh, uh, the values that people hold, values in this case of freedom and liberty, democracy. And, and then he would let the event dictate the outcome, right, and not try and pre-sell it. I mean, obviously, the G7, one of the big news items out today, you know, is the acceptance of uh, Janet Yellen's proposal to have a uh, 15% flat corporate tax around the world. I mean, that's a victory lap that they're already taking that are going to talk about, you know, when they get to the G7. But, of course, the Biden-Putin thing, which I agree with you, Jeannie, that may be the most interesting part of this whole trip, has a completely unknown outcome, right? I mean, like, he's obviously going to – the president's going to go and push back on what he sees as incursions in in all around the world, whether it's the support for the cyber terrorists that are uh, wrecking our economy and trying to stop our country from from prospering uh, or uh, troop escalations – Uh, on the border of uh, Ukraine. I mean, there's a wide range of transgressions, and I think that will be the one that'll be the big surprise. And Joe Crowley, what are you watching for as as Biden makes this first visit overseas to Europe and meets with so many of our friends and then, of course, ends the trip with this one-on-one with Putin? Well, I think that Rick is right that, you know, the big concept, the big idea piece of that will be a part of this, because that's Part of Biden's reestablishing our relationships with our traditional allies. Uh, I think that uh, on the top of the list will be COVID-19 and vaccination and what the United States uh, is willing to do and capable of doing and helping our allies overseas. You know, the announcement that we're going to be shipping 150,000 doses, although very small to Taiwan. Again, it's an indication of our, you know, soft diplomacy here, uh, but also sending messages as well. 
Uh, the you know the the I think the you know the victory lap in terms of the Yellen agreement on a minimum tax, global minimum tax, but that is uh, yet to be uh, solidified. There are still some steps that will uh, have to be taken, including a vote by the EU and getting those small countries like Ireland, like uh, uh, the Czech Republic, uh, Hungary, uh, to go along with that remains to be seen. I know they have some other tools they'll use to kind of cajole that, but it'll be interesting to see how that comes out. But there's no question we'll have an opportunity to boast, but I think more importantly to reestablish those ties. And yes, there's no doubt that the entire world will be watching uh, when the president meets uh, with Putin. But that, as, as, as Jake Sullivan said, is not as a reward, but really there uh, to send the messages, uh, especially on the issue of the cyber attacks uh, and the, uh, the, the need uh, for Russia to crack down on that. Yeah, and as you mentioned, we still there's still a long way to go with with this flat tax. Um, obviously, one of the big hurdles amongst many is going to be getting this through the G20 in July, and of course, it would have to pass through legislatures like our own, which is an uphill battle, to say the least. But in the early part of his trip, as 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 Joe and Rick just mentioned, we are going to see the president really among friends. He's going to try to really you know bolster this transatlantic alliance and our, our relationship with allies that so many people feel was damaged during the Trump administration. So we will be watching for that as the president leaves on Wednesday. Coming up, we'll talk more about the flat tax. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. Broadcasting live from our nation's capital, Bloomberg 99.1, to New York, Bloomberg 1130, to San Francisco, Bloomberg 960, to the country, Sirius XM Channel 119, and around the globe, the Bloomberg Business App and BloombergRadio.com. This is Bloomberg Sound On. I am Jeannie Shanzano, and coming up, we're going to talk to Rick and Joe about former President Trump's trick trip to North Carolina this weekend. We're also going to check in with former Representative Mike Rogers about what's going on with the ransomware attacks of JBS, Colonial, and others. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, here with Bloomberg politics contributor Rick Davis and former New York Congressman and Democratic Caucus Chair Joe Crowley. So, Rick and Joe, over the weekend, I don't know if you were watching golf or gymnastics or Formula One, so many sports going on this weekend and so many big sports stories. But while you were doing that, Donald Trump took a trip to North Carolina. It was one of his first trips since leaving office in January. And even in the wake of his two-year suspension from Facebook, he led a really, I think it was about 80, 90-minute speech he gave to the North Carolina Republican Party State Convention, where he not only took on Facebook and Mark Zuckerberg, but he pledged to help the Republicans win back Congress in the 2020 elections and suggested he might run for president himself in 2024. Um he is not going to be silent um, after that. He is planning, he said, to resume his rallies in big states like Florida and Ohio fairly soon in the coming weeks, he said. And he's also expected to address another conservative political action conference in July in Dallas. 
As part of his speech in North Carolina over the weekend, though, one of the big pieces of news to come out of that was after his daughter-in-law, Lara Trump, decided she would not run for Congress. He surprised many people by endorsing the Senate candidate, Representative Ted Budd, in a 90-minute speech, and we have sound on that. It's great to be back in Greenville with so many proud North Carolina patriots who love our country, support our military, respect our police, honor our flag, and always put America first. So, so Joe, let me ask you, we saw the Democrats do very well in this special election in New Mexico the other day, even better, I think, than, than many people and campaign strategists thought they might against similar messages that the Republicans had used to do fairly well in 2020. Does this suggest that the president, former President Trump, is losing some of his steam in these districts? I don't think there's any question that once you're out of office, uh, you you lose a great deal of steam uh, as people kind of recalibrate. uh, You know, we're not yet into the presidential cycle yet. This is really early uh, as far as people are concerned. But I think there's also been some mixed reviews out there. We saw that in in Texas, for instance, Democrats did not do as well in uh, that mayoral race uh, uh, down uh, near Dallas in Fort Worth. Uh, And as well as uh, in McAllen in the long uh, the Mexican border, where there has been some issues there. So I think, you know, we're looking towards the New York primaries, for instance, uh, to send some indication as to where Democrats are standing right now. Uh, so I think this has a ways to play. But there's no question, look, you know, the president, uh, he couldn't disappoint me because I never expected him to have anything else but the positions he would take about uh, talking about how the election was stolen. I think it's sad, but it, it's not disappointing to me because I had no other expectation for him. <laughs> and Rick Davis, as, as, as a former Republican campaign manager for John McCain, um, how much do you think we've I've heard two different schools of thought that Trump being out there is actually helping gin up, uh, you know, excitement amongst Democrats in the base and getting them out to vote. And another school of thought is, of course, it gins up support amongst Republicans. What do you think is happening out there in terms of the effect of Trump going public as he did in North Carolina and as we expect him to do in the coming weeks in other key states. Yeah, there's no question, even in his post-presidency, even though he doesn't think he's post-president yet, that that he has a big impact on the local politics wherever he happens to be. I mean, without his uh, ability to use social media to sort of command attention, this is the way he's going to be uh, able to get headlines and, and, and things like what we're doing and talking about him days after he's given a speech. But it cuts both ways. I mean, there's no question that his intercession in the Georgia runoff cost us two United States Senate seats. <laughs> so, I mean, that's at his feet. So even though he can incite Republicans to turn out in some cases, uh, and he does drive up the Democratic turnout, because uh, if, if, if it's believed to be a referendum on Donald Trump, more Democrats are likely to turn out. Uh, he does have the ability to have all of that backfire on him. And I would say um, uh, part of it was this endorsement that you talked about. Um, uh, you know, the other Republican running is the former governor of the state, Pat McCrory, who sat there watching this happen in front of him. Uh, and then after the endorsement of Bud uh, that uh, President Trump did, uh, you know, took some shots at McCrory. So, you know, he when the president gets involved in these uh, Republican fights in a state like North Carolina, 
you know, he can demoralize uh, a lot of candidates and a lot of voters who um, like Pat McQuarrie and maybe would have supported him for for the nomination. And Rick, as usual, you just described that so beautifully. It's sort of classic Donald Trump, but it really does make your skin crawl when when you sit there and watch somebody be put through that, like the former governor. Joe Crowley, before we let you go, because I know you've got places to go, I would just love to get your view and sort of sizing up briefly the New York City mayoral race, which is coming in the next couple weeks, the primaries. What do you think happens on the Democratic side there? Well, I know there have been some pretty big endorsements, if I, might, if I don't say so myself. But, uh, you know, I think uh, the recent poll, I think by New York One, indicates that uh, Eric Adams has really jumped a bit away from Yang. Um, I think um, they're, 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 it's very volatile, quite frankly. You know, the New York Times endorsement of Garcia certainly set her off. And now that it's kind of settled in a little bit more now, I, I still think it's Adams to lose. Uh, you know, you're still 15 or so or days away from, from the outcome, but uh, uh, I still have that sense that it's Adams to lose. Uh, yeah, I, I agree with you on that. But boy, it has been tight and exciting for people outside of New York to watch this race um, with the New York City Democratic primary coming up, as you mentioned, in about 14, 15 days. Coming up, Rick Davis and I are going to talk to former Representative Mike Rogers. Want to thank Representative, former Representative Joe Crowley. Congressman from New York, former congressman from New York, and former Democrat, Democratic Caucus chair. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, and this is Bloomberg. This is Bloomberg Sound On on Bloomberg Radio. I'm Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Millions of dollars in cryptocurrency paid to hackers of the largest pipeline in the U.S. has been recovered. This according to Lisa Monaco, Deputy Attorney General of the Justice Department. Here's some sound on that. Ransomware attacks have increased in both scope and sophistication in the last year, targeting our critical infrastructure, businesses of all types, whole cities, and even law enforcement. And joining us on the line to walk us through this really important story is Mike Rogers. He's former Republican congressman representing Michigan's 8th Congressional District from 2001 to 2015, former chairman of the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence between 2011 and 2015, and currently the director of IronNet Cybersecurity. So, Representative Rogers, it is so good to have you on. As we're hearing this news break about the recovery of these millions, can you walk us through how the government would recover cryptocurrency like that? Yeah. So, and thanks, uh, thanks, uh, Rick. I, it's great to be here. This is pretty unusual. So this isn't going to happen every time. This is a good news success story. And what it tells me is it's likely not the most sophisticated group and or they felt so confident they didn't protect uh, their operations with proper security. So what the, the feds likely did uh, is track back to their accounts, their network, and got into their crypto wallet. So they had a place where they would store this, uh, the, the millions of dollars of ransom. Uh, and if you can find that and you have the sophistication of the U.S. government, you can dip back in there and take those cryptocurrency, uh, that cryptocurrency back uh, and then put it back into the open market and give it back to uh, 
colonial, then they would go ahead and exchange it for real money to get their money back. They probably didn't get it all, but they probably got a good chunk of it. It's pretty sophisticated, but again, you got to get. There's a little bit of luck involved here. They had to you know, hop back and find that crypto, excuse me, crypto wallet, and they had to get into their network. So that takes a pretty sophisticated operation to do that. Mike, this is one of the uh, few good news items that have come out of the government lately related to uh, uh, cyber attacks. In this case, a ransomware attack where people shut down uh, operations of a company and and extorted money out of them. But there have been much more high profile and, frankly, more devastating attacks like the solar winds attack uh, earlier last year that have upset the security of our country. And I'm curious, uh, are you seeing progress being made on this? I remember my old boss, John McCain tearing apart uh, another Mike Rogers, the former admiral who was uh, in charge of uh, Cyber Command uh, uh, five years ago about how ill-prepared we are. And yet today it seems like we're repeating all that same kind of narrative. Well, and and that's true. And uh, if you recall about 11 years ago, uh, my partner and I, Dutch Ruppersberger, the Democrat on my committee, we came out pretty aggressively about saying, hey, look, we have a huge problem in cybersecurity, and it's growing. Oh, and by the way, China, Russia, and others are going to be the cause of it. And it's only gotten worse. And so we have admired the problem in the U.S. government, and now it seems like they have a love affair with the problem. They have not done the things that they need to do to stop this. And think about it. In what part of national security When you're talking about protecting the economic base of the United States, not just in critical infrastructure, certainly Colonial was a part of that, but any company that is engaged in commerce in the United States and employing people and developing IP, what other place would we say, listen, if someone fires a missile and blows up your business, we're all in the U.S. government. We'll help you with that. But if a hacker from China or Russia or uh, Iran gets into your network, causes disruption, causes economic loss, guess what? You're on your own. We just haven't done it. And so we haven't crossed this threshold that we need to do uh, to, to aggressively have a collective defense across both government and private sector to take out the profitability in these criminal enterprise uh, actions. There's ways we can do that and really push for these companies to understand they have to improve their defenses. You have to lock your front door. The cops can still come, but it's up to you to lock your windows and your front door. Well, it's, you know, the good cyber hygiene and defense work is going to have to happen up front. But I will tell you, this is, and I did not bet on this not that long ago. If we are in a cyber shooting war today, so if the countries that we just talked about really wanted to cause disruption and break things using the internet, we would lose. And we just are not well protected because again, remember these companies are being asked to do this by themselves. It is a good news story, but remember this is clean up on aisle nine. After it happened, after it was shut down, after the ransom was paid, they were able to work their way back and get some of that money back. Mike, I'm curious. I mean, you've talked about collective defense, but is there a collective offense? I mean, is there a way to create, you know, in the nuclear era, we talked about a mutually assured destruction. Is there such a thing in cyber where these countries that harbor these criminals and sponsor these things themselves as governments – Uh, could have the same thing happen to them and therefore not allow it to happen to us. Yeah, and it's not that we don't have capability. And this is one of those things, Rick, you may even recall this from your time, uh, and and Jeannie as well, that this thing was debated over and over. What is our offense capable? How far can we go? How do you make sure this doesn't spin out of control? And here's the problem. 
the government controls and protects .mil and .gov. That works out to you know roughly 15% of all the networks. The other 85% of the networks are private sector networks, and the NSA is not looking at them. I, I, contrary to common belief, they're not looking at them. So if the NSA goes and flicks someone in the forehead overseas and says, thou shalt not do that again, and we're going to make your life miserable via cyber, uh, guess what? They have the option to come back at that 85% of these networks that they all know aren't protected. And so we have had, we have to get to a, a better defense. And my, my dad always said, if you're going to go punch your neighbor in the nose, best to hit the weight room for a while first. And so we have got to toughen up our defenses. We have to have this collaborative defense before we can actually be offensive in turning off things and, and disrupting their illegal uh, and nefarious activities. So, Representative Rogers, one thing that hasn't been discussed a lot in the United States, at least as far as I can see, is this Open Skies Treaty. Putin pulled out of it formally on Monday. Russia exits it. And this is this pact that allows for unarmed surveillance flights over member countries. Joe Biden's meeting, obviously, next week with Putin. What do you think the United States should do about that pullout? And can you talk a little bit about the relationship between that treaty and these kind of cyber attacks? As you mentioned, Russia, China, and these other countries, what impact that treaty has had on that? Well, a couple of things. So if you think about what this means, it means that the upfront, that 30,000 foot level, if you will, it's deteriorating. Our, our security posture is deteriorating and that mutual security posture. Uh, is deteriorating with countries certainly like Russia. And so they have been engaged in activities that I would argue, and I think our intelligence services would argue, uh, has pushed the limits on intermediate, intermediate nuclear forces treaties uh, and other things that I think they have likely violated and or cheated or both uh, in those kinds of things. And so some of these, uh, the surveillance that you mentioned, is really important because it's the you know it's the security guard walking over and jiggling the door to make sure it's locked right it's just to keep the honest people honest uh, and make sure that you're doing all the things that you need to do to protect yourself including keeping an eye on bad guys that's why you put up cameras that's why you have fences that's why you do all those kinds of things on a personal physical level well same thing with both uh, aerial surveillance and or electronic surveillance and other things it, it, it is a tool to try to make sure that we could say, hey, we know what you know what you're doing and you need to stop it now. And so this is worrisome for me. And it's and it is a leverage point for countries exactly like Russia to end up pushing that envelope. And so they don't have an economy that's going to knock us around. They can't really do anything economically to us other than unleash these proxy forces to do cyber attacks, by the way, uh, and cause us economic disruption that way. But so what can they do? Well, they can use all of these tools uh, to try to push back against NATO, against the United States, against our allies. That's why you see this happening. And it's my hope that the Biden administration gets ahead of this problem and they get ahead of it very soon, because the longer this goes, uh, the more the more difficulty it gives to our intelligence services and our uh, surveillance folks. Let me put it that way. Uh, to make sure that they're not doing something they're not supposed to do. So, Mike, the president calls you up. He's like, I'm seeing this guy Putin soon. Uh, I need some advice. You got 30 seconds. What do I tell him about this cyber attacks that his country's been hosting? 
uh, I would just put a timeline on it. You're going to have a certain amount of time or we are going to have to respond. And we won't go beyond uh, a reasonable response, but we will target individuals, networks, uh, and front companies that are actively participating. And remember, by the way, and this, this is the defense piece, the Russians used a U.S. domain name and a U.S. server knowing that our current law, current politics, won't allow the NSA, the best player on the field, even out of the locker room to help defend this. So get our act together and tell them we are going to do this, and we're going to make sure that there's a cost, a consequence for what you're doing. Thank you so much, former representative uh, from Michigan, Mike Rogers. He is currently the director at IronNet Cybersecurity. Great to talk to you on this important day as the entire country wrestles with the cybersecurity challenges. I am Jeannie Shanzano, along with Bloomberg Politics contributor Rick Davis. Thank you so much, Bloomberg News. The countdown has begun. This May, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Qatar Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg, held in conjunction with our official partners, the Qatar Ministry of Commerce and Industry and Media City Qatar and premier sponsor QNB. Join heads of state, influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections and gain unique insights. Learn more at QatarEconomicForum.com.